welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Here today with Kenneth Johnson, uh, incredible visionary director and producer of some of the most uh, iconic shows of my entire generation. No, 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 really, please don't, please. <laughs> Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, The Incredible Hulk, The Alienation, just to name a few. Kenny, this is a true honor and uh, a privilege to be uh, here today meeting with you and talking to you. So thank you, first of all, so much for doing this. My pleasure. Do you remember uh, 12, 13 years ago, I actually called you Okay. because I realized that we both went to the same college. Oh. And I never knew that until I got the alumni directory from Carnegie Mellon. And somehow I found that you went there and it had everybody's phone numbers and emails. And I just decided one day, I'm going to I'm gonna call you and see what That's happens. what you do. It's the right thing to do. And you answered. Well, yeah, of course. Why and it I? wasn't an assistant or a gatekeeper or anything like that. And we spoke for 20 minutes. And I was so humbled that, that you answered your own phone and we got to talk and, and that's where we started uh, corresponding through email over the last uh, 10 or so years. So Yeah, I never quite got used to Carnegie Mellon. When I went to Carnegie, it was still Carnegie Tech, Carnegie Institute of Technology. Uh, and uh, you'd be on, sitting on a bus with somebody and they say, oh, you got a Carnegie Tech, you're an engineer. And I go, no, I'm in theater. And they'd go, oh, really? <laughs> so a little unease that came up. but. Uh, but I've never quite gotten used to Carnegie Mellon. It, it sounds like something you eat with prosciutto, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I'll have the Carnegie Mellon, please. <laughs> you know, but, um, but Carnegie was a great school and uh, a theater school. No film, no TV. It was right. all just learning theater on the boards, working with actors. And, um, and Stanislavski and the sort of Russian method of, uh, of uh, acting and directing. Uh, and it was great, but I also had the good fortune of running into a guy named Bill Pence in my freshman year, the first week of my freshman year. Bill was not a dramat. Uh, that's what they called us in the drama department, mm-hmm. dramats. Uh, Bill was in, uh, I think he was in, build, uh, in printing management or something mm-hmm. like that. He was a big, but he was a big man on campus. He ran the school newspaper. Uh, he ran the, the school drama thing that was not involved with uh, the drama department called Scotch and Soda for mm-hmm. engineers who wanted to be actors and directors and stuff. Bill also ran uh, this operation called the Film Arts Society, which was a a film society where students paid like three bucks or something and got to see 14 films over the semester. Uh, And Bill uh, really introduced me to cinema. Mm -hmm. I had been a movie fan as a kid, of course, but uh, but Bill really introduced me to the world of cinema and and the great movies from the beginning of cinema all the way up to to the present day and internationally, you know. And he was sort of my uh, my cinematic godfather. I uh, I refer to him, and uh, uh, and it was because of that. By the time I got out of Carnegie, I'd had the great theater training and working one on one with actors and all of that. But uh, I'd also seen three or four hundred of the best movies ever made, mm-hmm. and also put myself through school setting up film societies and other colleges around the country. Uh, so I decided I wanted to try to blend the two because the beauty of uh, filmmaking is you're not confined to a proscenium, you know, you can, um, when my daughter was going, Juliet, was going to NYU in the film school there, uh, I'd go into New York and, and see her occasionally and I remember one day we were walking through Times Square and she just paused at the middle of 45th and Broadway and said, wow, Dad, look at all the extras. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because that's how a filmmaker sees the world. You, you're standing in Times Square, and you don't just see it as Times Square. You see it as uh, uh, what you can do with it. You know, and have run Lou Ferrigno through the middle of it mm-hmm. at one point. You know, um, it was funny. I, when I was doing the Hulk, I, I was eager to make it as real as I possibly could, given the fact that Bill Bixby metamorphosed into Lou Ferrigno. Okay, once we got the audience to buy that, we wanted to try to stay as real as we could. And um, uh, and I uh, wanted to take him to Times Square and really run him through the center of the real world. Uh, I was curious if anybody in Times Square would notice that this big green guy was running up through Times Square because there's so many weirdos in Times Square anyway. Yeah. But yeah, they did. There were like 10,000 people watching us. And, uh, and the funny thing was that Lou's whole family came over from Brooklyn. 
uh, and they were in his motorhome that we had there for him. And it was like, hey, Vinny, Louie, Vinny, Donald, Tony, oh, I saw Uncle Sully, come on, me, Kenny. And everybody in the trailer talked like Louie did. They were all from Brooklyn, you know. You're from Brooklyn, too. Yes, I am, yeah. So what set you on your career path? You went to Carnegie Mellon hoping to get into acting, or you always knew that you wanted to be a director mm -hmm. and, a, and a creator of... Well, in high school, I did... Uh, uh, I, my first production was uh, in the, the uh, 8th grade, I came across um, a script for War of the Worlds, mm -hmm. the one that Orson Welles had done in, uh, in 1939 mm -hmm. that scared the pants off everybody, written by Howard Koch. And um, I later made his, met his son, Howard Koch Jr., now calls himself Hawk Koch, uh, and told him how much his father had impacted on my life. And I, so I had this script for uh, War of the Worlds, and I had bought a tape recorder, saved up my money and bought a tape recorder. Now in those days, a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder was like the size of a suitcase and mm -hmm. weighed about 7,000 pounds, you know? But I said, oh, this is cool. I can, I can do a radio play with my friends. So mm -hmm. I got all my eighth and ninth grade friends. They came in and we, uh, uh, I was my first producing and directing gig. I didn't realize that's what I was doing. I was just doing a show, you yeah. know? Uh, and of course, I saved the Orson Welles role for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and um, uh, and we did the sound effects and the music and, and all of that stuff and it was really cool and I played it um, for one of my teachers and she said oh we've got to play this for all these different classes and so we did we turned the lights down and played the tape recorder so they all heard the, the, the broadcast and what happened when I did that was I became known in my Sherwood High School as the drama guy mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and so I said oh okay I'll, I guess I like that uh, and then I began to do more theater as an actor in high school. Uh, in the 10th grade, they asked me to play Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. And, uh, and that was what really set me into realizing that my home should be in the theater. And that's what I wanted to do. And, and although I did mostly acting and stuff in high school, I also studied Shakespeare at Catholic University, which was the other great drama school in, uh, in the, at that time in, in Washington. And um, uh, and I slowly began to gravitate and realize that well maybe as an actor I'm a good director <laughs> you know and uh, so I went into Carnegie as a director partly also because I saw when I looked at the Carnegie catalog that the actors got these classes and the writers got these and the lighting designers got these yada 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 the directors got everybody's class and mm -hmm. I figured okay I better do that because I don't know whether I'll end up as a lighting designer or a costume designer or a director or whatever but. The more I know about the whole business, you know, the better it would be. And uh, uh, and so Carnegie was uh, was a great place to start. And by the just before, when in my junior year, I decided I needed to make a film because okay, that's the way I was sort of finding myself heading. But they had no equipment. They had mm -hmm. no you know anything at all. And my friend Bill Pence, who had gotten me into uh, filmmaking to begin with, into cinema to begin with had graduated, obviously, and uh, was running a film division in, a, in the Air Force in Colorado, I think. And I said, Bill, I need to make a movie. You know, and he said, well, what do you need? I said, well, I need a camera and some film. And he said, okay. And he borrowed a camera from the Air Force for me and 10,000 feet of Tri-X negative and sent it to me. And uh, so he was, in more than one way, uh, sort of my guru to, wow. to get me into this. As a matter of fact, in my new novel, uh, which we can talk about, I dedicated uh, the novel to Bill and his wife Stella for being such guiding lights uh, in my life. And um, Bill went on to later create the Telluride Film Festival mm -hmm. uh, and ran it with Stella for some 33, 34 years and mm. now runs the Turner Classic Festival here in Los Angeles every year. Um, so uh, thank you, Bill. <laughs> so what was your first big break? You got out of college, you went to New York, I believe. Right? Yeah, I went to New York and, and said, here I am, ready to make movies. And New York said, why did you come here? Uh, <laughs> we're not making that many movies. And I discovered that they weren't. I was already married with a child by then. Uh, and so I had to get into TV and uh, to, it had, to get, had to pay the, you know, food right? yeah, of for course. the wife and the Important kid. things. And, um, uh, and I started as a PA at CBS uh, just to, to be doing something doing the CBS Morning News and, uh, and a lot of other things at CBS locally, just as a PA, the lowest one on the totem pole. Right. But I was trotting around New York at the same time with my film under my arm that I had made, thanks to Bill, uh, which was a sort of noirish little uh, psychological thriller that uh, I had written and directed uh, at Carnegie and the music students did the score for me. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. Uh, and, you know, it's a 30-minute film. I look at it nowadays and say, wow, it'd be a really great 20-minute film, <laughs> you know, but, but, uh, but there's still stuff in it that I look at and I go, 
and that's that's pretty good. Some of this, you know, it still still to this day holds up. Um, and uh, and eventually I t went into uh, to WPIX in New York uh, and gave it to a guy named Lloyd Gaines, who was the manager of the of the station. And uh, and he, he said, all right, I'll look at your film. And, you know, and the next day he said, come back tomorrow. And so I came back the next day and. He walked into the conference room, really sort of grumbling, and threw the can of film down on the desk and said, how old were you when you made that? And I said, I was 21, 22, I guess. He said, how old are you now? And I said, 22 and a half. <laughs> you know? And he said, so you want to work here? And I said, yeah. And so he gave me a job as a producer and a director uh, on this local rock and roll show that uh, had sort of just been starting up at, uh, at WPIX. And, uh, and I was very lucky that in the year or so that I was there doing it, it became the top-rated rock show in the country, mm. in, in the city, um, and uh, it was a local show in New York, but, but we had bigger ratings than some of the national shows. And all of the rock groups in New York, the Stones came through there, uh, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, uh, Percy Sledge, Ramsey Lewis, Di Dionne Warwick, uh, Diana Ross, uh, Simon. <laughs> There were these two guys in um, New Jersey, called themselves Tom and Jerry, and uh, they all did covers of everybody's stuff, mm -hmm. and they, they weren't so good, but we always used to give them a shot because they were local guys. Right. And then one day I got a call from one of the guys, and he said, listen, Kenny, we, we've got a new song we'd like to premiere, we'd like to do it on your show. Uh, and I said, yeah, sure. And he said, we're writing our own stuff now. I said, okay, great. Uh, and by the way, he said, we've decided to stop calling ourselves Tom and Jerry, we're going to go by our real names. Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> you know, so uh, it was it was a it was a cool show, and we did uh, we did a lot of really uh, had a lot of good acts on it. And uh, uh, but uh, about a year into the gig, uh, I got a call from Westinghouse Broadcasting. Um, I had interned while I was in college uh, with Westinghouse at one of their stations, where they were doing this small show called the Mike Douglas Show. Mm -hmm. We were just sort of trying it out out of town, and it was the first ninety-minute daytime talk show. A variety show and that nobody done in, in that yet and Westinghouse saw an opportunity and they had been nurturing it and finally taken it into syndication it had really taken off and was getting into uh, uh, I think they were in about 180 markets by the time I joined uh, but I didn't want to do it I wanted to make movies you know and I, uh, I, I they said well just go down just go over to the Warwick Hotel and meet with this new guy that uh, is going to be the executive producer he's heard you heard about you seen your work would love to have you involved as a producer um, and so I went over to the Warwick Hotel and walked into the room with Roger Ailes, mm -hmm. uh, as in the Roger Ailes. But then he wasn't the Roger Ailes, he was just a guy that was only a couple of years older than me. But uh, as soon as you walked into a room with Roger, you knew that unless you were Stephen Hawking, you were not the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. you know? Incredibly bright, incredibly witty and, and funny and clever and very seductive. And uh, I said, Roger, I don't want to go, you know, and he said, Kenny, I'll let you do all the film you want to do. You'll be the film guy. Every piece of film that we do, you'll do, as long as we get our 90 minutes live six times a week done, you'll have all the free time in the world, yeah. <laughs> you know. But, uh, but Roger was true to his word, and I, and I took him up on it, and I went down and took the gig, and, uh, uh, and the Douglas Show was a phenomenon. I mean, every May, it was, we had a larger audience than Oprah or The Tonight Show combined times 10. Wow. I mean, it was, it was huge. It was 7 to 80 million people a, wow. a week watching the show. And because of that, everybody in the world who had something to push was coming through there. Every TV star, movie star, mm -hmm. author, lawyer, candidate. You know, you know, I know Roger had some difficulties at Fox later on with the, the, the only person I ever saw Roger hit on was Richard Nixon. Interesting. Yeah, because Nixon came to do the show in 68 and uh, uh, and after he, after he was on the air, Roger pulled into, the, into his office and said, Mr. Nixon, uh, you should hire me because I can get you elected. Hmm. Nixon said, how can you do that, Roger? And uh, Roger said, because you need a media advisor. Mm -hmm. and, Rod, and Nixon said, what's a media advisor? And Roger said, I just made that title up, you know. He said, it's me. I can do it. I, can, I produce Mike Douglas. I can produce Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. And Nixon said, okay, and hired him. And Roger went off to produce Nixon for the 68 campaign, got him elected, he was just as he said he would. And, I, and Roger said, Kenny should take over the Douglas show as executive producer. I was 24. That's incredible. Yeah, and, um, uh, and running the major show in the country. 
Um, and by the time I left, as a matter of fact, we were in like 220 markets, I think. We had more stations than NBC or ABC wow. had. It was, it was huge. Uh, but about two months into, direct, into producing this show, I got a call one night, Kenny, it's Roger and Dick. Okay. Uh, and they said, we want you to leave the Douglas show and I want you to direct my Madison Square Garden rally. You know, it's going to be huge. We're going to have all the cameras, whatever you need. We're going to, and then I want you to do all of my television directing, and then I want you to go into the White House with me. Wow. And I said, well, I'll call you back, Dick. Because <laughs> you know? uh, it just, you know, I, I, I did call back. And I said, look, I'm very flattered. Uh, it's an honor to be invited into the White House, but it's just not what I want to do. Still had your vision I set wanna, on I wanna make, I want to make narrative films, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I passed, stayed with the Douglas Show for another season, and then finally headed for California where I said, okay, here I am ready to make movies. And Hollywood said, how about a talk show? That's what you do. You're a talk show producer. Right. You get what you got. That's right. It's like, oh my God. I, I always tell my film students, be careful what your first success is because that's what they'll want mm -hmm. you to do for the rest of your life. It's the safe bet. That's right. They know what you that's can right. do. That's right. You know how you did that? Do three more of those. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, and, and also, if you're an actor, you can do bit parts and work your way up. If you're mm -hmm. a writer, you can write on spec and hope somebody will buy your script and mm -hmm. then maybe if they like it enough, they'll let you direct it. But if you're a director, the, you don't have that option. They, people either give you the money or they don't. Yeah. And until they do, you know, how do you do it? So, uh, and my friend Steve Bochco, who had been at Carnegie with me, as a, as a matter of fact, when I left Carnegie, I left the film society to Stephen to mm -hmm. handle. Um, but he had already gotten his toe in the door as a fledgling writer at Universal. And he said, Kenny, if you write, you can really, you know, shape your own destiny a little mm -hmm. bit and, and work your way in. And uh, I said, but writing's hard. <laughs> I said, I, I, directing is easy. It's, a ta it's tactile. It's, it's, it's a sensual experience when you're directing. Not sensual in the, word, in the, in the meaning of sexy, right. but it's in, the, in that I can touch right, you. You know, right. you're right you there. It. Yes. Yeah. And I can you look into your it. eyes. You can shape it. And, and you've got people around you that are saying, hey, what about this idea? What about that idea? So that you don't have to come up with all the ideas yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and also, it's just the most fun. Uh, and Orson Welles called a movie studio the world's biggest electric train. You know, mm -hmm. that's in some ways is true, and it's uh, it's just totally um, uh, it's just totally different from writing. I said, Stephen, I said writing I can't do. Stephen, he said, Yes, you can. It's not hard. I said this a bunch of times because Stephen said it to me. He said, "You just stare at a blank sheet of paper until beads of blood appear on your forehead." <laughs> and I said, "That's what it's like for me." He said, "You can do it." He pushed me, so he kept. And I discovered that I could write and that I could write pretty fast and I became a great writer of unproduced screenplays, most mm -hmm. of which are still on my shelf upstairs. But one of them uh, Steve really liked and gave it to a guy named Harv Bennett who was uh, an executive producer at Universal. And Harv was doing this show called uh, The Six Million Dollar Man. I've heard of it. That's Harv's voice, right? Barely alive. That's Harv's voice. Yes, Harv yeah. got a residual yeah. every day, every time that played. Harv was no fool. Um, and uh, he, he said, I love your script. I said, I can't help you get it made, but I really like the writing. Just curious, was that all a sci-fi script or was it... No, was no, it? no. It was called The Stuntman. It was a. Uh, it was before Burt Reynolds or any of those guys mm -hmm. did the, a stuntman movie. And it was about the, a fledgling guy coming in and becoming a stuntman. It was before Richard Rush's great movie, The Stuntman. And um, uh, it was sort of a comedy and, mm -hmm. and quite, quite fun. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Burt Reynolds' people had read it, but we were a week too late. They had just signed the deal for him to do the one that they did. Mm -hmm. you know? So there you go, Hollywood. Uh, but Harv invited me to pitch some ideas for, for The Six Million Dollar Man. And, and, uh, and, and the first thing I said was, well, why don't we do The Bride of Frankenstein? And he said, what? And I said, well, you've got this guy that's essentially a monster man with, you know, a, a monster arm and legs and a boop, boop, boop eye, mm -hmm. you know. I said, shouldn't he have a mate? Shouldn't there be a bionic woman? And, um, and Harv liked the idea. So did ABC, Fred Silverman running ABC. And so I wrote uh, the script. And, uh, and it uh, sort of rolled on from there. Uh, Harv invited me to be normally when a guy writes a script an outside writer comes in to write a script for an episodic television show it's like thank you very much and we'll go away right. now and we'll fix it and put it on the air but Harv kept me, now. yeah Harv kept me involved in the whole process of the uh, 
uh, of creating the bionic woman uh, for the six million dollar man, including the casting. I mean, we looked at a lot of people, Sally Field and mm -hmm. Stephanie Powers and several others, but the one that really jumped was Lindsay. Uh, she had just done a show for another one of my dear friends, Steve Cannell, um, who had been also really helpful when I first got to Universal, who helped me, gave me a couple of scripts and gave me a writing, a directing gig too, bless his heart. And, um, uh, and Lindsay had done an episode of Rockford, mm -hmm. Rockford Falls, mm -hmm. might have been the pilot even. And, uh, and we, Harv and I really liked her, not only because she wasn't beautiful, but she was like the girl next door mm -hmm. pretty, you know? But more than that, uh, what I loved about her was Lindsay had this uh, extraordinary sense uh, of making it sound as though she was making it up as she went along. Mm -hmm. It didn't sound like she'd do, she had memorized lines mm -hmm. and was doing the script, you know? Very natural. She, yeah, oh, it was beyond natural. There was a spontaneity about her. I mean, you could see the, her mind working as she, as she, as she, as she tried to try to figure out, well, um, 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 how about, you know, there was that kind of stuttery, fumbly, figuring it out on your feet mm -hmm. kind of quality that I really, really liked. and. Um, uh, and so we hired her, and, and she proved to be exactly what we wanted. Uh, and then when we were doing The Bionic Woman, I spent a lot of time listening to Lindsay mm -hmm. in terms of how Lindsay put words together and how she spoke and like that, so that I would always make the last pass on every script that we did so that I could really make sure it was going to fit into Lindsay's mouth, mm -hmm. you know, and... Uh, was and there any improvisation happening, or you no, scripted everything? No, we She just it. made it sound spontaneous. That's right. <laughs> no, it's amazing. It was amazing. You know, she was, she stuck to the script, but she had a way of making it sound uh, like she was making it up as she went along, mm -hmm. so it was, it was great. And, uh, and then very quickly, because the show was so successful on Six Mill, it took Six Million Dollar Man to the top ten for the first time, uh, and, uh, and so naturally, <laughs> they want more, right? And Fred Silverman called me and said, "We want you. To, I want you to spin off the Bionic Woman into a separate series, okay? But I don't want you to leave Six Mill. But but wait, you know. So for a while, I was writing and producing both shows at the same time. Incredible. Yeah, but uh, it's this idea of a shared universe that you know we're seeing now. Well, with Marvel yeah, yeah, yeah. When you, well, you were doing well, it back also then. in the Chicago shows, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, I did uh, an episode." Uh, a couple of months ago for my friends Andy Schneider and Diane Froloff, uh, who were the showrunners, executive producers, they created the, the Chicago Med, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's terrific. It's particularly good at lunchtime when you're prepping, because all the shows are in the same building, mm -hmm. and if they brought in uh, sushi for the Chicago Med lunch, and you don't like sushi like I don't, mm -hmm. they said, well, just go that. across the hall. Chicago Fire's got uh, Chinese today, or they've uh -huh. got uh, Italian, you know, down at Chicago MIF, uh, EPD. So it was, it was, uh, it was a great thing. But, uh, but yeah, the shows, when we did the crossover shows between Six Mill and Bionic Woman, I think it was pretty much the first time anybody had done yeah. that. Um, where a story began on the Six Million Dollar Man and then went over to the Bionic Woman. And it was a great way, of course, to cross-collateralize, I guess mm -hmm. is what they call it today, mm -hmm. where uh, you got people hooked on one side on Sunday night and then you got them again mm -hmm. on Wednesday night. And so for a while I was, I was writing and producing the number one show, Six Mill, and the number three show, Bionic Woman. Uh, and, and Doing one show at a time like that is like living in a garbage disposal. You know, doing two shows like that is even worse. Plus, you don't have any time to direct, which was the whole thing. I mean, when, when Harv offered me the job to produce, I said, uh, Harv, I'd rather just write and direct. Producing mm -hmm. is a, kind of a pain in the ass. You know, let me just do what I really love to do. And Harv convinced me that, the, that it was in television, it was the producer that really held the whole thing together. And the producer hired the writer, hired the director. So when I heard that, I said, oh, well, duh, I'll take that job. And, uh, um, and proceeded to hire myself to write and mm -hmm. direct. But I didn't have any time to direct, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, uh, uh, so I let go of Six Mill and just stayed with Bionic for, uh, for another season and a half. And, uh, uh, and it, was a, it was really, really a good, exciting run. And, and also, the Bionic shows were like graduate school with pay. Mm -hmm. It really was like, because uh, Steve and uh, Steve Cannell, Steve Bochco, and I always sort of thought of ourselves as the class of 1980 at the Universal University, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, because we were all sort of figuring it out and making it up as we went along. And uh, 
walking around the back lot to see what sets we could steal from other shows to use in our shows. Just to work in because oh, it was already there. And you know, yeah, time. well, that's it. And, you know, you, if you could walk onto a set and say, okay, if we repaint this and change the furniture a little bit, we can make it look like Marrakesh instead of the Paris, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's, we would literally go around and, and find a set that we could use, and then we'd write a scene that would work into mm -hmm. the set. You know, so it was, it was a creative time. Richard Anderson was probably happy. Richard Anderson, Steve, <laughs> you can't go in there, pal. Jim Perry, who was a great writing producer that was with me on both Bionic and then later on Hulk, we, Jim and I had this fantasy that Steve and Oscar were actually a couple. Interesting. Yeah, and we wanted to write an episode like, you know, you know, Steve, you're going out. He said, well, I can't be a hairdresser, Oscar. What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, but but uh, and Lee, I love Lee because he, he, Lee always talked to me. Sound like he's constipated all the time. He's just a little <laughs> bit uh, can't quite you know. But uh, but Lee was uh, was terrific. He was one of the most gorgeous men I had ever seen in my life. My God, what a beautiful guy he was, and funny and and really down to earth shit kicker. He told me a couple of times. Um, how lucky he felt he was that if he hadn't lucked, he said, if I hadn't lucked into this gig, you know, I'd be coaching little league or, or, or high school football somewhere, you know. And mm -hmm. he said, see, he really appreciated, you know. And he sold the role. I mean, oh yeah, once they figured out how to do it, because they apparently I never saw them, but apparently they did th three pilots of the Six Million Dollar Man before they finally got the mm -hmm. show on the Four air, and, and they were trying to do James Bond. It was mm -hmm. it was in it was Lee Majors in a tuxedo, yeah. and it was just didn't fit, you know. Yeah. Got to be in blue jeans and boots, man. And <laughs> um, uh, you know, and it worked. And, and Lindsay had her own sort of lifestyle, and uh, uh, so it was it was cool. One of the common themes in your work is is the value of grounding science fiction with reality and creating this level of believability with the audience. And these worlds are are so far-fetched, but yet your work is always so, it, it, you believe it, you, you really sell it. And there's, a, there's a picture on my wall here of me with George Burns <clears throat> in the early 70s. I had the good fortune of working with a great American comedian. And, uh, and I was talking to him one day about, because George had this way of telling a story that just absolutely drew you in. Mm -hmm. He pulls you, you along. Know, that's right. And then and then he pull the rug out or give you something else. And I said, what's, do you have a secret? And he said, yes. He said, Kenny, when you're telling a lie, telling a fiction, mm -hmm. when you're telling a lie, you want to put as much truth in it as you can so that, that you can get the audience going, oh, yeah, okay, I knew about Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Oh, I saw an article about that. Mm -hmm. And then you just take them a half step further. And they've believed you this far, so they're going to go along with you, you know, yeah. through through the rest of that. And How do you know when you're going too far and what that, over what the that top. line is? <laughs> over the top. I'm sure you, you got close in well, yeah, many the, moments. After I did the two-hour pilot movie for The Hulk, uh, they, uh, they CBS wanted a second movie so they could sort of get an idea of how it would work as a series. Uh, so I wrote a second script, and in the script I wrote, mm -hmm, I'm always looking for worthy adversaries, something that, that would be hard for anybody to fight, even Lou, you know. And so I said, okay, I wrote in a, wrote in a scene where there was a fight with a bear. And, uh, and I was sending the scripts to Stan Lee out of courtesy. I mean, Stan wasn't having a nitpicky kind of thing at all. He, Stan wasn't that kind of a guy. But I just wanted to keep him advised of what was going on. So he called, he, I sent him the script. He called me and said, I love the new script. That's great. I love the fight with a bear. And I said, oh, good. He said, but it ought to be a robot bear. I said, no, Stan, no, let me explain, <laughs> you know. And I told him the George Burns story. And then I said, I said, also, there's another thing, too, Stan, an audience will only buy so much. And you've got to have a sense of how much will the audience buy. Are they really going to buy this? Uh, because if you're nurturing them along, you've got to keep the rules tight and make sure that the audience is buying what you're pitching. And I said, now, Stan, we are asking the audience to believe that Bill Bixby metamorphoses into Lou Ferrigno, and that's a really big buy, <laughs> you know. If we had a robot bear, it's over the top. And he said, but you do the robotic stuff on the bionic woman. I said, of course. We're in a robotic world in the bionic woman. The bionics are just an extension of robotics, essentially. Sure. You know, so yes, I can believe that uh, there could be a w up and walking around robot if I can believe people can have robotic limbs put into them, you know. So it's, and we, we went around and around and finally uh, Stan called me and then said, okay, okay, you know what? I figured it out. You're absolutely right. <laughs> you know, no robot bear. And, and I think that it's important to, uh, to establish the rules of what you're doing. When we were doing the bionic shows, I'd have a writer come in and say, okay, here's a, I'm gonna do a scene where Lindsay uh, comes up and she has to turn over this truck. And I said, she can't turn over a truck. 
And he said, what do you mean? She's bionic. I said, yeah, she's bionic. She can turn over a car, but she can't turn over a truck. That's over the line. She's, she's not that strong. You mm -hmm. know, she can jump up two stories. She can't jump up three. She can jump down three, mm -hmm. but she can't jump down four. She'll break herself, you know. So you create a set of that's rules exactly, that you have to live by. That's exactly it. So you have, to have, you have to have the rules, and you have to stay with the rules and stay tight. And, and also, I was eager to move the Hulk out of the whole comic book world entirely. I mean, mm -hmm. all the stories about, you know, changing Bruce Banner's name had to do with Lois Lane, Clark Kent, mm -hmm. Peter Parker. You know, it's, I just wanted to get away from that uh, uh, alliteration. So mm -hmm. somebody pointed out, so you hire Bill Bixby? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Ironic. Yeah, true. But, um, uh, but I, was, I was eager to try to keep it as real as I could. Even when we did the Hulk, I did a lot of research into how could this happen, mm -hmm. and I, I got into uh, cellular biology and mitochondria and, and all of this kind of Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, yeah. so much of, of selling the story is with the medical jargon and the biology and the right. chemistry and the DNA and adenine thymine links and solar flare activity. That's right, all that stuff. It's yeah. it's. It's incredible, actually, how, how far you went with the technology and the science behind these well, characters. Well, I, I think it's important because I think, again, the more substantive you can be and the more real you can be, and you, and the more you can say, see the scientists say this and this and this, mm -hmm. and some of them say this, which is totally made up, but it sounds like they could have because yeah, the way you take set it. Take it a half a step further right, and you set it up. And so that's what we were trying to do always with, uh, with the Bionic shows and, uh, and with the Hulk. And, and also I was really blessed to have uh, such great writer-producers with me on the show. Jim Perriott and uh, the late Nick Correa uh, were extraordinary writers. And uh, it's also where I met Andy Schneider and Diane Froloff, uh, uh, who were not then but are now and have been for a long time married. Um, and um, Andy was my story editor on The Hulk, and uh, he and Diane always claim I gave them their first job. I don't think that's true. I think it was at least maybe their second job, but, mm -hmm. but they, were, they were so talented. And, uh, and with all of them, all of those minds, really creative uh, minds working on it, and, uh, and minds that were not just you know, trying to make up light fair. We were, we were always looking for substance underneath. I mean, what the Hulk was about, was about really, was the enemy within. Mm -hmm. The Hulk was, in Banner's case, he was trying to, con it was self-control. He was trying to control this raging spirit, right? And with, so we, when we were putting the shows together, we'd say, okay, how does the Hulk mani manifest itself in other people? I mean, with some people, with Banner, the Hulk, his, his demon was anger, okay? But with somebody else, it was alcohol, or it was drugs, or it was obsession, or it was greed, you know? And we take that as a theme and try to thread that into the story uh, to see, you know, how... And, and I think that's part of what has given my stuff, my, all of my work in science fiction and speculative fiction, such a broad audience. Uh, because I've always been blessed with the perfect demographics. The largest audience for my work has always been adult women, mm -hmm. and and on a, the second layer is adult men, and then teens, and then kids, and the largest audience for all of my stuff has always been female, mm -hmm. uh, and and it's I think not because I've ever pandered to it and tried to say okay how can I write so that women will like the show, I just write what feels right to me and which happens to be focused more on. Uh, on my classical theater training mm -hmm. of, of emotional structure, on on the humanity, on humanity, absolutely, yeah. and, and the humanism that uh, I mean, <laughs> the whole Incredible Hulk came about because my wife Susie had given me Les Misérables to read, and as you know, and I had, I had Jean Valjean and the Fugitive and all that wonderful Victor Hugo universe mm -hmm. in my head, uh, and that's where it, where the the, the Hulk came from. Um, How much of your work is inspired by literature? I, I've heard you talk about Les Miserables, Robert Louis Stevenson, oh, yeah, Frankenstein, Brighter Frankenstein. <laughs> all of you know, all of that. Is that a main source for inspiration I think so. for you? Yeah, it generally it has been, and and sometimes by happenstance, you know, you you, you something you hear about something and and, it's, and it just triggers something in you, and it's uh, so a lot of it has come from that, and uh, certainly when I wrote V, uh, I never could have written V if I had not read War and Peace the mm -hmm. year before. Mm -hmm. Because I was so intrigued by how uh, Tolstoy had this, this whole spectrum of characters who seemed to be all over the place. 
and very slowly in the and they were and not related or in, in, tied into each other and then slowly in the course of the novel he just does this you know and you go oh <laughs> wow and uh, no wonder it took him all those years to write um, but it was just an amazing piece of writing and so when I set out to do V I wanted to do an exploration of how a whole spectrum of people uh, would react to a sudden intrusion into their lives by this magnificent hyperpower. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it was like, you know, how do, how do you react? How does Danny react? How does, you know, everybody, every different person react? Because what V was, was never about big spaceships and reptilian races and all that sort of stuff. It was about power and how when a hyperpower comes rolling in, some people will instinctively suck up to it and mm -hmm. collaborate like the Vichy French did with the Nazis in World War II, uh, while others will sort of play the middle of the road, the go along, to get along road, I call it, uh, which is, I'll just keep my head down, I'll just do my job, and maybe they won't bother me, you know, if I'm not Jewish or a scientist or whatever the, local, the latest scapegoat is. Of course, in V, I, I made the, the scapegoats, the scientists, as a parallel to what uh, had happened to the Jews in World War II. Um, and then there are the third group of people who are the, the, that say, no, no, wait a minute, this power is being abused and we have to fight back. And they, of course, become the heroes of the resistance that, uh, that really say, no, we gotta, we gotta fight back against this and make it happen. Uh, what I've been able to do generally is try to find a story where I, the essence is really important to me and I understand what the, the underlying substance is. And then I find a way to sort of wrap it in, uh, in a commercial skin, and I don't say commercial in a cheesy, chintzy kind of way, but in a, in a, in a, in a way that's accessible mm -hmm. to a broad audience. Uh, and, um, and not, as I said, I started to say, I, I don't target the female audience, but I think that they, I have drawn such a large female audience to my work because they see that I'm more interested in emotional structure and all of that than in car chases and explosions mm -hmm. and, and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can have some car chases and explosions and you can have big flurry spaceships and you can have a flurry of sparks. That's right. <laughs> Susie says, my wife says, I cannot write a, I could not write a drawing room comedy without a flurry of sparks in there somewhere. It's a joke. It's going to be the title of my uh, memoir, I, <laughs> I think, also. It's a good title. Uh, it's, it is, and it's true. Uh, but, uh, but that way... There's something for everybody. That you know, obviously, so many young people tuned in when V came on because of the big spaceships and because of the the what if nature nature of the alien race and all. But what it was really about was me getting them into the store into the store so that I could tell them what I wanted to tell them about. The, what's the best way to react to power? Mm -hmm. Who would you be? When I created the spectrum of people and actors and and characters in V, I wanted everybody in the audience to be able to say, I think I'm him. Mm -hmm. um, Somebody for everyone. I might be her. I hope I wouldn't be that one, but I might be. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, so that everybody it was thought provoking, and that's what I was. That was that's what I was trying to do in it, and uh, and spark it, and um, and also to to chip away at intolerance and, and prejudice. That's been one of the recurring things in my life, Jeremy. I was raised in a very very bigoted anti-Semitic household, and uh, as, as an only child. Uh, and I heard of hate words and, and racial epithets uh, and the N-word and every other word all the time. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I just didn't buy it. It mm -hmm. just didn't feel right to me. Uh, and so part of my ag agenda in life has been to try to chip away at that you know, whenever I could. Uh, it's interesting, I've, I've gotten a lot of letters recently in the last few years about the bionic woman from people in the LGBT community hmm. who said that they really identified with her because you know because she was not the same on the inside as she appeared to be on the outside interesting you know and i thought wow <laughs> you know, i had i mean i wanted to write a strong woman i love writing strong female characters but it had never occurred to me from that perspective mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and uh, and it's really true and the, 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 the peak of that really was when we did Alien Nation. One of my favorite uh, letters of all came from a black doctor in Detroit. When we went on the air and he said, you know, I saw that this show is coming on air, this Alien Nation, and it really made me angry. He said, what do we need another show about aliens? You know, why don't they do a show about the black experience? You know? And he said, 
then I saw your show and realized it was about the black experience. <laughs> uh, that and that's what that's what happened with it when Fox. Uh, my friend Harris Cattleman was running Fox Television, and uh, he called me uh, and, and and said, "Hey, we've got this uh, movie that did not do very well, feature film, but but Kenny, we think there might be a series in it. Would you come take a look at it?" And uh, and I said, "What's the title?" He said, "Alien Nation." I went, "Oh, I'm so tired of aliens and stuff like that. I want to do more. I want a more eclectic career, right?" Um, but um, so I went over and I, as, a, as a friend. I said, "Okay, I'll come to the And I'm sitting in the screening room, not thinking I'm going to make it through to the end of the movie because it was really sort of. You probably heard me say this: Miami Vice with cone heads mm -hmm. is really what you know. There was a there's 250,000 alien slaves crash land in the Mojave Desert and move into L.A. and uh, uh, and one of them over a five year period has, has arisen to be a cop. Okay, so. Uh, but it was a buddy cop show with an alien, and he drank raw, sour milk instead of liquor, and they yep. had two hearts, and you know. But it was like I still just couldn't get into it, and I was about to walk out of the screening room and say, "Harris, thanks, but I just can't do this." When there was a scene where the alien cop had to wave to his wave goodbye to his little family, and there was one shot of this little alien woman and her two little alien kids on this sort of ramshackle doorstep, waving goodbye, and the bell went off in my head. I said, "Oh, wait a minute, who are they?" What's it like to be them? What's it like to be Vietnamese in Galveston, Texas, in two, you know, in 2000, mm -hmm. or black in D D Detroit in 1950 or 1990, or for that matter? And and so I went back to the Fox guys and I said, all right, you think you've got lethal weapon with aliens? Yeah, yeah. And I said, no. What we've got is in the heat of the night. I said, let me do a piece that's about. Uh, prejudice about intolerance mm -hmm. about uh, they look different from us so therefore they must be different from us uh, let's let's do a piece that this really attacks that head-on and and will this is a show that can go on and on and on because prejudice goes on and on and on right. and um, and they sort of got it and uh, uh, and and said okay okay go ahead and try it so much of your work, especially the Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, and the Incredible Hulk was about a time and made during a generation where things had to get done so fast. You talked about the garbage disposal, where you had low budgets, where you had very low of any technology for visual effects. <laughs> what do you think your work would have been like, or do you think your work would have been as as incredible as it, as it was now, looking back, if you were born in a different era, or if you came up at a different time when you had more high-tech visual effects, more big budgets. I mean, I think so much of what makes your work great is the charm and the humanity and the creative uh, solutions you came up with to right. overcome some challenges that you just couldn't achieve well, I think that with what you were given. You know, you do you use what you've got at the time. Right. I mean, when we did V, there were some shots in V, visual effects shots that involved a, a miniature this big. There's one sitting over there on the corner you can take a shot of. Some of our, some of our visual effects shots involved motion control, uh, using these spacecraft flying around in, and it's it's a much harder to have a visual effects spacecraft flying around in the real world than it is against a star field you know mm -hmm. it was a lot easier for George to put it in the, against the black sky with stars as than it was to put it in downtown LA uh, we discovered but uh, and there was some visual effects shots that we did that lasted maybe 20 seconds and cost maybe 70, 80,000 dollars for those 20 seconds. You could do on your cell phone today yeah. and it would look better mm -hmm. than what I did then. And I knew it. It was so frustrating because we, you know, we were laboring. I mean, I had, was using the same guys that George and Stephen were using. Uh, Greg Jean built, built my miniatures. Greg Jean, who built the Starship Enterprise and the Mothership for Close Encounters. Mm -hmm. You know, I had the A team, you know, working on and the makeup and the effects people were all Academy Award winners, multiple Academy Award winners. But we were still using rubber masks and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And now, you know, you can do Voldemort and take people's noses off and all of that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time. The essence of it is the, the human drama. I mean, the, the probably the best day, Jeremy, I ever had in my career, one of the very best days, was when the editors and I put together V for the first time that we had just slapped together mm -hmm. in four, four different editors in four different editing rooms, all doing different pieces, mm -hmm. and we taped them all together, because in those days you were really literally taping the film together. 
and we took it into a little screening room, screening room two at Warner Brothers, tiny little place, and we ran the whole thing of V, and there was it was just the actors. Mm -hmm. There was no special effects, there was no sound effects, there was no music, there was even some shots missing and all that. It mm -hmm. was just the actors working, and it took your head off mm -hmm. because the drama was so strong and mm -hmm. it was so good. And I realized that uh, that because of that, all the visual effects and stuff we were going to air, uh, add on top of it, was just going to be icing on the cake. Yeah. And it was just you know they would be bells and whistles, yeah. but the core of it was the human drama. And I think that's what we tried to do, particularly on The Bionic Woman. Six mm -hmm. mil got a little goofier sometimes, and, and I, uh, I wasn't on the show that long. But, but um, there, there's, so many, there's so many examples, and I'll just mention one really obvious one, of the white eyes, the tearing shirt, and then your, your full-on Hulk. Which, yeah. to me, is a hundred times better than seeing a full CG metamorphosis without any cutaways. Yeah. I just think it's more effective, it's much more powerful, and the brain fills in those gaps. Well, that's it. That's and what, what you had to do, and you had to, you had no choice because of budgets and technology limitations and time, I would argue is much better than what you would have been able to do, even by today's standards, well, with I, I, infinite potential for effects and budgets. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the audience uh, felt the same way. And Ang Lee is a brilliant director, but he just was not a movie for him to do. No, well, first of all, nobody should have done the movie. It took them 12 writers. You should have done it. Oh, well, I don't. I, well, I would not see. I wouldn't have done it with CGI. No, you know, I agree. Like I completely it's, agree. It's, you can't. For me, it just it didn't work, and it didn't work. But uh, and the only line they had like twelve writers uh, on it over like a ten-year period to yeah. make this movie, and uh, and, the, and we were sitting in the theater, and the only time the audience reacted to a, a line was when uh, uh, he did the one that I wrote as a joke uh, on the show. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. You know. And um, uh, after, the, after the movie and the lights came up and everybody was trying to sneak out because nobody wanted to talk to anybody about <laughs> this thing. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Uh, but one of the uh, uh, reporters, a guy from Variety, grabbed me and said, Mr. Johnson, don't make me Ang Lee. You wouldn't like me when I'm <laughs> Ang Lee. And I went, oh my. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, <laughs> it was pretty deadly. But the, um, uh, you talk about the white eyes thing. Uh, what I wanted to have was a trigger effect so that we knew when we had reached the point of no return. Uh, we were shooting at CalArts uh, on the pilot and, uh, and I had, we'd set up a scene in a laboratory that we were doing and I had heard from makeup that the, uh, the uh, contacts had come in. I said, why don't you go down and try them on see how they feel? And uh, so I was busy doing something. About 10 minutes later I hear, hey Kenny! And I turn around and walking up the hallway toward me is big superstar Bill Bixby. Hmm. With this big grin and these white eyes, and I said, That's "Son of spooky. a bitch!" I said, "Son of a bitch!" Could you see this show's a hit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, you could see. Oh, yeah, it was fine. But I mean, they were painful. He hated wearing them. But they were uh, thick, right? Yeah, they were. They were thick, hard lenses. It was not. It was a, the old days of contact mm -hmm. lenses too. You know? But, uh, um, uh, but yeah, and we and how to how to get him to expand out of the clothes? I mean, we tried inflatable wetsuits. We tried all kinds of stuff to see what we could do. And finally, I, I said to Jerry Heron, our, our great costumer, I said, you know what, Jerry, just just how about we just weaken the thread, you know, the yeah. seam, and you just pull a thread out of the seam, and we'll put a really tight shirt on Lou and let him, you know, pump up. From the comic book, I only took uh, a couple of things, basically. The fact that when he got angry, it, uh, it, he, the metamorphosis occurred. Um, and why he was green, I could never quite figure out. I said, what is going on, Stan? Is he the jealous Hulk? Is he you know, green with envy? Uh, I said, the color of rage should be red. And Stan said, yeah, I know. He started out gray, and then the printer said he could do a pretty good green. So I said, OK, let's just go with green. And I said, Stan, that's not organic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and again, me trying to stay as close to reality as I possibly could. But I liked the idea of a trigger effect so that when Banner was to a, at a certain level of anger had boiled up, it popped in his eyes. It was not in the comic book, The mm -hmm. White Eyes. Um, and uh, because it was very creepy to see Bill, you know, turn into this. And the sound effects. And the sound effects yeah. and the music that Joe yeah. did and uh, the voices that we used, that sort of eerie, ethereal. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, stuff that I borrowed a little bit from Space Odyssey and you know all of those things. Um, and also the other advantage of it was that by seeing the white eyes we didn't have to see the whole metamorphosis every time. 
once you saw the white eyes, you could throw Bill Bixby into a closet, <laughs> and we all knew what was going on, you know, yeah. who was going to come out. It was out. done for the day. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and we didn't have to go through, but we, at the same time, we did enjoy trying to figure out new ways to do it. I remember some of the shots we did where, where Bill was running and you'd see his feet, and, and then suddenly it would be Lou's feet, and yep. suddenly the shoes would be burst out, and, you know, and all of that sort of stuff. There was one where he's climbing up a staircase in his hands. Or right, exactly, changing. and it just changes you go. Yeah. You know, so we, we tried to find stuff like that, but we could never just sit there on Bill Bixby and have him change. And I mean, even the close-ups we did, where we did them the way that they did the Wolfman in the 1930s. You know, you sit Bill down, you start him with Bill, and then you cut the camera, and you come and put a little makeup on, and you roll a little bit of the camera, and then it was you, effective. And then you just have to do the lap dissolves over it to make him change. But it was there it was, was a, a, an episode of Child in Need where he's walking down an alleyway, changing back, and mm -hmm. it's a very dark alleyway, starting out as Lou Ferrigno mm -hmm. all the way in the background. And as he walks towards the camera, he gets smaller and smaller, mm -hmm. and there's shafts of light yeah. that correspond with the dissolves where you put in a smaller actor. Yeah, I was, thought it was brilliant. It was, it was, it was cool. It's just uh, so creative, and again, well, using what you had at your disposal, how can we make well, this Well, it's effective? funny that you would mention that episode, because that's one of the ones that always people get to talk about. Uh, and it was one of the ones that I had to fight tooth and nail with the network, CBS. You know, they said, this is not a Hulk episode. I said, what are you talking about? He said, there's no bad guys. And I said, it's about child abuse. It's about spousal abuse. Of course there's a bad guy, you know? I said, don't you guys get the parallel that the, uh, uh, an adult man beating up on a woman or a child is the parallel with the, the creature beating up on the man? It's like, it's a, it's a perfect hook up. And they fought me and fought me. And I said, listen, guys, I'm going to shoot this. You don't want to air it? Don't air it. But I'm shooting it. Yeah, it and Universal incredible. stood beside us, and we got a, you know won a lot of awards and a lot of humanitarian awards and all because of that because it was uh, it was important to try to do stuff that that people would make them think a little bit mm -hmm. you know and and uh, what makes a better human being I mean that's really uh, yeah. the core of what I was looking for. So what are you working on now? Um, well, we uh, discovered a couple of years ago that I own the motion picture rights to V, mm -hmm. and suddenly I had a lot of new best friends. Uh, all the major studios wanted to give me a really obscene amount of money uh, to buy the rights and to let me produce, absolutely, maybe let me write. But for a director, they're thinking, you know, maybe bring in Michael Bay or something. Mm -hmm. And I said, mm, no thanks. But when you say no in Hollywood, they, they tend to say, okay, we understand. How much money do you really want? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said, no, guys, it's not about money. So we pulled it back from the studios because uh, I just was fearful of getting edged out of the director's chair and losing creative control. And we're endeavoring to set it up as an independent picture, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, and it's a, it's a tall climb because it's a $60 million movie. Um, and, uh, but I know that there's an audience out there for it. V is, v is just so popular still all over the world. Um, and um, uh, and the, the beauty of V, of course, is that it's a timeless tale. It's, it's really Spartacus and the Revolt of the Slaves, mm -hmm. or the American Revolution, or Apartheid, or, uh, uh, you know, and certainly the whole Nazi rise to power, too. Um, and so uh, uh, clearly what I've tried to do is to write a screenplay that brings it up full bore into the 21st century, um, because when we did the original V, there were no cell phones, there was no internet, there was you know, none of that sort of thing. Uh, but we, the characters were still there, and the story was right. And I didn't want to reimagine it as people try to do sometimes. You know, it's a dangerous word, mm -hmm. uh, and it usually fails as when they've tried to reimagine the Bionic Woman or reimagine the Hulk. And yep. I didn't want to see V get reimagined mm -hmm. by somebody else. Uh, so what I've done is write a screenplay that, that really takes the essence of all the stuff that made the original miniseries so good, so critically acclaimed, and so popular, uh, but bring it up into the 21st century, and also give myself the opportunity to have something that I didn't have in the 1980s, which was the tools mm -hmm. to make it look the way that I wanted to make it look. Mm -hmm. it just, you just couldn't do it then. Um, and uh, and now we can, and we it can really be spectacular. And I also wrote a sequel novel that picks up the story 20 years later. So V the movie would be the first of a uh, trilogy that really takes the whole story hmm. full bore uh, and uh, and carries it through. Because at the end of the original miniseries, we try to contact an enemy of the visitors, hoping that the enemy of my enemy will be my friend. Right? Mm -hmm. And it, uh, in the early on in V, the second generation, so there's, when it looks like there's no hope against the visitors, there's a knock at the back door, and people say, hi, remember that distress call you sent? We got it. 
we're here to help. Nice. Or are we? <laughs> you know, and that's uh, that's what drives it. So, uh, so we're we're we've got, we've got that in works, uh, trying to get the funding together. If you know anybody that can bring um, the sixty million dollars in, you can be an executive producer and get Excellent. a very nice finder's fee, um, uh, or even ten million or twenty. How million. can people get in touch with you? And uh, well, you? go to my website. Uh, you, you just Google me, and it'll you'll see producer, writer, director, official site, or kennethjohnson.us. Mm -hmm. That's that's my site, and they can find out everything about the, about the book and about the. Uh, uh, about the, the the movie that we're pressing to get done, um, is it? It's just so it's just so incredibly popular and such a sure. no brainer, you know. But uh, sometimes in Hollywood, there's people with no brains. But uh, in the meantime, I've got a new novel that is coming out uh, in July. Uh, it releases in in uh, paperback and also in Kindle and also in audiobook and uh, and, audi and audible, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for mm -hmm. downloading. And the audiobook is particularly fun because the novel is told in the first person by about a dozen different voices. So when we did the audiobook, I rounded up oh, that's great. a dozen or so of my closest actor friends and said, uh, "Here, let's do a, let's do a play." You mm -hmm. know, it's called *The Man of Legends*. Uh, it's not an autobiography, <laughs> and uh, uh, and it's a it's a sort of a supernatural mystery that um, takes place in New York City. Uh, over um, over New Year's weekend in 2001, um, and uh, but with flashes back over the last 2,000 years to the ancient Holy Land, and then further beyond that into sort of the some of the primal images of Paradise Lost, and uh, uh, it's a, it's sort of a blend of, uh, of epic kind of adventure and suspense and a really sweet love story that's all sort of rooted in this great untold legend. Uh, about this legendary character that people have heard of, but nobody's explored him or who he was until until I did this. Last question, what do you want your legacy to be? The thing that's most important to me has always been uh, trying to dig into humanity. You know, when I do my film class, I teach seminars in, in filmmaking, mm -hmm. and one of the things I, I, I ask the students at the end of the day, because uh, I, and I encourage them to, you know, to be the best that they can be and put their heart in their work and all of that sort of thing that you think of. Andrew but Carnegie. I, yeah, Carnegie Tech. Car or Andrew my Carnegie's motto. Andrew yeah. Carnegie's motto was, "My heart is in the work." And I carried books with those book covers for four years mm -hmm. at Carnegie. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I'm embarrassed to say I was a senior, Jeremy, that I looked at it one day and said, "My heart is in the work." Oh, I get it. <laughs> if yeah. your heart isn't in the work, it won't be the best it can be. That's right. So I, I lay all of those things on my, on my film students, but the last thing I ask them is if any of them know what the word camera means. And most of them don't. And, uh, and I explain to them that camera is a Latin word. It means room. Camera means room. And it comes from the fact that uh, 350 BC, the Chinese discovered that if you were in a really dark room on a really bright day outside and there's a little pinhole in the wall, the light would come through, and on the opposite wall, it would you'd see an image upside down of what was outside, and uh, and a number of painters, including Vermeer and Da Vinci and others, created smaller versions of this to use to help with their their artwork, and uh, Kepler, I think, the astronomer, finally gave it a name. He called it a camera obscura, which just means dark room. You know? And over the years, uh, people realized, well, what happens if we put a lens here and you know, and a little photosensitive paper. And so the camera was born, and Obscura kind of got lost in the ages, but still call him a camera. Well, what intrigued me about that is the allegory and the metaphor of the fact that when you're working with a camera, you're working in a room. And I tell the students, you've got to be very thoughtful about what you bring into the room. What are you going to bring into your room? Because conceivably, you can have a lot of people coming into your room, hundreds, thousands, Millions, I've been lucky to have tens of millions of people, of millions of people come into the rooms that I have created. And so I always say to them, okay, what are you gonna bring into your room? I mean, you can make a lot of money making movies like Saw, One, Two, Three, Four, and ugly, mean-spirited, violent, sexist, you know, uh, stuff. Or I urge them to, to err on the side of thinking more about the, the humanists of the world, about the Victor Hugos, about the Tolstoys, uh, about the, William Wyler's, uh, about the Steven Spielbergs, about my particular uh, favorite is Akira Kurosawa. 
a great, great Japanese director and such a humanist. And so I always urge them to, when they're thinking about what they're going to bring into their room, to think the way of humanism and to choose wisely. Kenny, thank you so much. This was a, a true honor and, <laughs> and a pleasure. pleasure for me. And I also want to just thank you for all your work. Uh, it was truly uh, uh, impactful to me in my upbringing and, mm -hmm. and set me on my career path in, in many ways. So thank you so much for everything you've done. That's so rewarding to hear, Jeremy. It was, it was my pleasure to be here. And, uh, uh, and it's, let's just keep up the good work. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.